Muddy News Media. This news just in, listeners. The Athletic is extending its £1 a month offer for all new subscribers, meaning you can get unrivaled analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around, plus a brand new breaking news service and ad-free versions of all of The Athletic's podcasts for just a quid. This deal won't last forever, though, so don't miss out. Sign up today at theathletic.com slash totally. Totally Football Show. Today, international football. England, Belgium, France, Portugal. Everyone having penalty shootouts. We reflect on all the international excitements of the last few days. Plus, PPV. Premier League unveils a brand new three-letter acronym for us to get upset about. And the most controversial project big picture since Brendan's self-portrait in the Being Liverpool documentary. There's a lot to keep up with in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Bauer. Hello listener, it's Monday the 12th of October and excitingly enough it's a post-international weekend pod which is always my favourite, particularly today though because we've assembled a stunning lineup. Uh, they are a former pro uh, footballer and analyst Adrian Clark. Hello James. Yes, Duncan Alexander, his days are quite literally numbered. Hello James. And Paris born and bred Julien Laurence. Bonjour everyone. Woof. Jules, you'll be telling us all about the France-Portugal game later on. I'm looking forward to that. But how about we begin with the latest from Gareth Southgate's Brave England as they took on Sunday late afternoon at Wembley, the number one team in the world, Belgium. Duncan Alexander, shaky start, then a big improvement, question mark. Well, I wouldn't say big improvement, slight improvement. Um, It was a kind of reverse of the old Sven, first half good, second half not so good. It was the other way round. They beat uh, the number one team in the world. They've only conceded one goal in a calendar year. Yeah, top of their Nations League group. Yeah, there are other facts available. I mean, it was just a little bit insipid in the first half. Eleven right-footed players constantly turning back onto their right foot and passing it sideways to each other. Um, And Belgium cut through on on numerous occasions. And yet, kind of strangely, once Belgium had scored their goal, um, which was a pretty blatant penalty given away by Eric Dyer, um, they didn't really do anything else until towards the end of the game. And yeah, England in the second half were were better. So, Mm. you know, it's not that often you can say England played an international, didn't play that well, but sort of, you know, ground out a win. So that's something at least. All right. You mentioned the lineup. Uh, that was a, it. Was quite an on-brand Southgate selection, Adrian. On-brand in what way? Well, in the, a lot of defensive midfielders and right-footed players. <laughs> Very much so. Yes. No. Absolutely. Yeah. It's um, yeah. It, it kind of upset me ahead of kickoff to see no left-footers involved at all. And when I was watching it, I was I was drawn towards you know ca- almost counting the number of left-footed passes or shots that I saw, and I, and I just don't remember any. It was quite quite ridiculous. So yeah, I, I thought the balance of the side was was really quite bad, and and the team selection was was overly safe. But but I guess when you win, as Gareth Southgate just has, then that safe team selection is is justified to some degree. It was it was as fortuitous as it gets, wasn't it? Really, for me, it was a dive from Henderson. Really, really um, went to ground easily, and and the winning goal was was a huge fluky deflection from Mason Mount. I just was completely unenthused by 
by the shape of the team, by the use of the personnel, by the team selection and, and by the by the tactics, really. Um, but England have somehow won the game, so we shouldn't moan too much, I guess. OK. Uh, as you mentioned, Henderson going down to win a penalty, which Marcus Rashford, MBE, converted to equalise just before half-time. And then that Mason Mount shot, which deflected over Simon Mignolet in the Belgian goal. Julien, as a very objective observer, what did you make of the Brave Three lines? I, I was not impressed. I mean, I, I don't like Gareth Southgate anyway. I don't think he's very what? good. I didn't like the tactics. I didn't like the choices that he made for the starting eleven. Uh, they, they, there's not many things I like in that performance from, from today. The, the win, I guess, okay, I, you take that. But I thought Belgium was were a lot superior to England in, in, in a lot of departments in that game. I, I don't think I saw any... I don't know, little triangles. I don't know what the wingbacks were there for because they were never used how you should use the wingback. I don't understand why that double pivot is so defensive in Henderson and Rice, Rice and Phillips, whoever he wants to play. I thought he lacked so much creativity. I just don't no. see the progress. That's the thing since the World Cup. But if England were that bad, how bad were Belgium then if they lost to this uh, shambles? But they lost on one penalty that I don't think was a penalty for me. And then on a deflected shot that they could do nothing about. Apart from Where that, were all the Belgian uh, shots the Well, no, there's, well, there's a goal that's disallowed. I'm not so sure why in the first half. There's a save by Pickford. There's a header missed by Lukaku. There's far more chances for Belgium, even in that second half. And far more creativity in that team than, than you had for England. I guess Harry Kane on that corner at the end is the only other real chance that England have the whole game. I mean, the only thing to say about the second half is that England had 40% possession in the second half, which was down from about 56 in the first. And England always, under Southgate, always look better when they have less possession and they can counter-attack. And that, I think, is why, is why they looked a bit better in the second half. But, you know, just the first half was classic, kind of England just passing sideways and back and sideways and back. And it's just like, oh, man. Yeah, it was just ponderous. What we didn't see any of was rotational movement you you need to have players interchanging positions creating angles Jules touched on it there it, it there was none of that uh, I think the wing backs could have could have t- taken up more central midfield positions at times I'd like to have seen Mason Mount given a more of a freer role he, he played he played virtually as a right forward now that's not Mason Mount is it I think Mason Mount is at his best when he makes those runs from deep and what Grealish did in the previous game that, that no one really did tonight was was come off at weird angles to receive the ball in pockets of space and to, to just change things up a little bit. It was all straight lines, very, very, very samey. And, and, and for that reason, I, I do feel that England were fortunate. And, and, and the left-footed imbalance was a big problem because it just slowed everything down because players stop check back onto their right foot and play the safer ball. When if you had just a couple of left footers in that starting 11, you can go on the outside and deliver earlier balls. So, so yeah, I just thought it was strange that, that Gareth Southgate, a very experienced head coach, wouldn't have foreseen that ahead mm. of kickoff because, you know, for me, it's obvious. A lot of people putting together entire England 11s of, of right-backs. So you can understand a little bit why the team's been skewed in that direction. Also, Duncan, you were mentioning a traditional English aversity to people of a left-footed persuasion. <laughs> Dating back to the Duke of Wellington. What, what have you got to back this up? <laughs> well, 
On a more realistic level, the last time England played Belgium in England, um, they beat them 2-1 and it was under Kevin Keegan in, in 1999. And that day was, I think of it fondly, it was Steve Guppy's only cap for England. Uh, one of the very few players that played for the A, B and C England teams. Um, but yeah, even dating back to then, left-footed players in England, have all, it's, you know, it's always been an issue for the last 20, 25 years, hasn't it, left-sided players? Um, apart from that brief period when we had Ashley Cole and Wayne Bridge, so they decided to make uh, one of them into a left midfielder, which didn't really work. But um, yeah, it just as Adrian was saying, it just completely unbalances the team. And uh, in a team that is doesn't have that many kind of fantasy players... Um, to have Jack really sitting on the bench. I mean, it's a sort of English tradition, isn't it, that the manager will kind of ignore a player like Grealish. You know, we saw it, Bobby Robson took a long time to get Paul Gascoigne in, into the team and, and you know, Hoddle didn't take Gascoigne to the, to the 98 World Cup. So maybe it's just, you know, Southgate's got an edict from the FA saying, don't play Grealish. On a, on a broader scale, chaps, does it not make you a little bit angry to see professional footballers at the very highest level unable to to use their left foot I just I just can't believe what I'm seeing sometimes I mean they're, they're technically brilliant these days we know that they're, they're schooled from the age of seven upwards in the academies and I just I find it jaw-dropping really that that most players are so one-footed I think almost every player considering how young they've they've, they've received top-class coaching from most players should be two-footed. It's not that hard to learn. I was very predominantly left-footed when I was really young, but but I worked on my right. And, and, and as a professional, I think I scored and assisted just as many goals with my right. Just because I, I just thought it's it's daft not to not to to have that option. I just find it bizarre, really, that that footballers these days rely on one foot so much. But, but Belgium, apart from Lukaku, didn't have any left-footed players either. And, and we didn't see that unbalance in their team. You know, they had Castagne at left-back, who's right-footed. They had Carrasco at left-winger, who's right-footed. You can even put Kevin De Bruyne there. However, they used their left foot far better than, than England. Just, just quickly on the performance, England were bad against Denmark and they were bad against Iceland. And they drew and they, and they won. But it was exactly the same problem against Denmark, I thought, with no left-footed players, no left-footed wing-back, no left-footed left-centre-back. And I, I just don't understand why... Southgate doesn't address the problem where clearly he saw against Denmark, this is not working, this is this is really poor collectively. And then against the Belgium, and okay, he won, and I agree with Adrian. I guess we should not moan because he won the game, so good, good on him. But I just thought, you, you see one game and you're not trying to fix it, you do exactly the same thing the next game, and then we have the same performance, albeit a different result, but it's not good enough. Is this an example then of a game when winning actually does you more long-term damage because it means that people don't address uh, the issues? Yeah. I mean, you've got those sweet, sweet FIFA rankings points in the bank, but, um, you know, it's probably better to have a, a plan of action leading up to an international tournament, I would I would say. <laughs> and, and look, yeah, I think Tyro Mings is, is a good example. I mean, he's in, in top four for Villa and he's a, he's a natural left-sided central defender. I, I think... That his his omission was was weird. I, I don't know what, what was up with Bukayo Saka, but he he would have probably offered a bit more balance as well on the outside. But yeah, look, it's <laughs> a great great uh, use of English. Yeah, those sweet sweet FIFA ranking points. Um, <laughs> yeah, they, they trump everything, don't they? And Jack Grealish, John Sands uh, writing in saying, how many of the England B team who beat Wales last week can the pundits see making the final squad for the Euro twenty twenties? Grealish was the the man of the match. Uh, that night, 
Uh, Cody Ings and, and Dominic Calvert-Lewin all scoring their first England goals in that game. That was against a, a fairly subpar Wales. Yeah, I, I think Cody, if we're going to persist with a back three, Cody should be in it for sure. I, I mean, I don't really rate him as a top-class defender. I don't think he's he's got a great deal of pace, but he is a great distributor and talker, and he's experienced at being in the middle of a back three. So for those reasons, I would, I would have him in. I would definitely have Jack Grealish because... You need in a tournament to have a different type of play. You can't just go with pace merchants, your Sterlings, your Sanchos. They're brilliant players. Of course, they are Rashfords. I just think you need something else because when plan A is not working, revert to something a bit different that will just ask questions of defenders. And and Grealish gets into positions that confuse defenders. And that's what, and he also wins a lot of free kicks, which is, which is huge potentially at a tournament. So yeah, he would, he would definitely make it. I think Calvert-Lewin's in with a shout. Calvin Phillips, I think I quite like his progressive passing. If he continues to improve, I think they've all, those guys have, have all got a shot at it, but yeah, it's a lot of football to be played between, between now and then. This is of course, if providing the Euros happen. Well, indeed. Indeed. More international fun to come. Next up, though, we'll be addressing Sunday morning's big bombshell. Hashtag Project Big Picture. We know everyone thinks this season is going to be different, but at Paddy Power, we're staying positive because isn't the new normal just the same old football? Avoid unnecessary journeys. That's Fulham's trip to Anfield off. Self-isolate? Some strikers do that very effectively already. You see? New normal, same old football. And that's why if one leg of your 4-plus-fold Acker lets you down, you get your money back as a free bet on all football matches and all markets. The Acker Cracker from Paddy Power. Max free bet £10, min odds 1-5 to five on each leg. Online exclusive. Exclude shop best. T's and C's apply. 18plusbegambleaware.org. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Hashtag Project Big Picture. Gentle slumber of an international weekend was rocked uh, on Friday by the announcement of the Premier League making some of its least attractive fixtures available for three times the price of a Netflix subscription each. A plan that has not been greeted with enthusiasm. But two days later, boom, even bigger. Major changes proposed for the Premier League and the Football League too, including an 18-team top flight, all the others with 24 no Community Shield, no League Cup, no parachute payments. Team bottom of the Premier League getting relegated to Scotland. Possibly might have made that one up. And a major shift in Premier League power with nine of the top flight teams. That's the big six as well as Everton, Southampton and West Ham getting a bigger role in decision making. How real is this plan? How worried should football fans be? Well, first of all, let's hear from Matt Slater from The Athletic who joins us now. Matt, you presumably have been uh, investigating this story uh, today. What's your take on it? Well, I mean, they're very real. Uh, they wouldn't have gone to all that trouble. Remarkable. And they, um, certainly on a sort of, uh, you know, on a Sunday, on, a, on an England-Belgium night as well. Um, biggest proposed shake-up since 1992. No, no question about it. Um, how worried should you be? Well, this is where it gets really, really interesting because there are so many proposals. It really is the the reset that people have been talking about that, you know, comes around every few years when there's a crisis. But I guess it's that old adage that crises can be opportunities. And uh, a couple of clubs, Liverpool and Manchester United, who I have been aware of and other people, I'm, I'm, you know, I don't I claim no special knowledge here, they get on pretty well, actually, considering you know where the where the fans are at. 
the the ownership groups of those two clubs, both American, of course, you know, see eye to eye actually on lots of issues, and uh, you know they're, they're not the only ones. The, the American owners in the Premier League do tend to sort of sing from the same hymn sheet. There is some stuff in here. I'll, I'll tin hat on. I will tell you, I like. There's some good ideas in here, and there's some ideas in here that I think if they were um, presented separately or even in little chunks, the majority of fans would quite like them. There's some good stuff in here about how we redistribute the pie, how we address bad owners. Um, do we play too many games? Do we play the right type of games? Um, I don't even mind some of the proposals to rejigging the playoffs. A lot of the things you've wanted, you know, parachute payments that, that queer the pitch in the championship and really compromise that division and make you all, the rest of you, lose your minds and spend too much money. We're going to take parachute payments away and we're going to put that in the solidarity pile. And we're going to, that means there's going to be more money for League One and League Two clubs. We're going to give more money to uh, grassroots football. So the National League, we'll pay that National League bill as well. So there's an awful lot in there that, that certainly fans like me... Uh, and you know observers like me who've been saying there's so many issues wrong with the with you know with the way we do things here the way we divide our money we need a really really big reset well this is a huge reset because it's almost like we're giving you so much we're answering so many of the things you've been asking for here are our strings and they are i mean we can talk, let's get into those because they are they, I, I think the price is is, is, a, is, a, is a high one Right. So the, the the suggestions are that this could be uh, in place as early as 2022, i.e. at the end of next season. Uh, what would need to happen? What's the mechanism for these changes to go through? Is it Would it need to be voted on by the Premier League clubs, the EFL? Is there government involvement? How, how does this need to kind of, how would this be able to come about? Well, the, the easiest way to, to explain that and to answer that is it, the Premier League has got to vote for this. This is Premier League money. This is a Premier League plan. The Premier League generates pretty much all the money in, in, in English football. Everyone's known that for, for, for the best part of 30 years. So it, this is a Premier League plan, and this is massively ripping up the way the Premier League operates. First of all, it's, it's two fewer teams, so you know that's, that's a huge, significant change right there from 20 to 18. Um, I've already mentioned the fact that the playoff system would change. I mean, that you could argue is a you know in favour of Premier League clubs in that it's not straight uh, two and then a playoff of the of three, four, five, and six in the championship. It would be a playoff of automatic two up, and the team that came sixteenth, so third from bottom in the Premier League, would then go into a playoff with the teams that come three, four, and five uh, in the championship. But the big look, the big and scariest, most alarming part of this plan is, and this goes, I think, also to answer how this would be voted in, is the Premier League has operated for 28 years on, we need two thirds of you to agree to do anything, right? One club, one vote. So Man United's vote is as important as Bournemouth's or Swansea's or Blackpool's when they were in the league, right? And we need 14 of you to agree. And the big six can jump up and down and they can they can have their own little private meetings and they can they can they can act in concert if they like, but they they will lose. They will lose if the other fourteen of you stick together. And as has happened, now this is one of the key issues here. This is one of the things that's been annoying those clubs for so long. And it's funny, well, funny maybe not funny, but it was the five subs things really that was the that was the last straw. The big clubs, and in fact, I think it was about eleven of them in the end, 
wanted five subs, the five subs, uh, you know, thing from Project Restart from last year to continue this year. And and the Premier League is out on a limb on this one. The rest of Europe has gone with that as well as a sort of kind of player welfare issue. Now, the Premier League clubs, the, the smaller ones, said, well, look, there's a competitive integrity issue here. It's a big advantage to the richer clubs with their, with their deeper squad. So they said no. And that really was just a... It, you know, it might seem like a sort of relatively small thing, but that was like, guys, this just keeps happening. This keeps happening. We keep getting outvoted here. So the governance change, the key governance change in this entire package is instead of 14-6, we're going to go the big six, surprise, surprise. And at the moment, it is uh, Everton, West Ham and Southampton. They are super voters. They, they have the real power here. And you only need two thirds of those nine. You only need six. So here we go. The big six. The big six suddenly get control of all the big decisions. They can sack the Premier League chief exec. They can rework the TV packages if they like. They get to make all the calls. So a lot of the stuff, as I say, in in the, the document that we've been like pouring over today is reasonable and clever and answers things that a lot of people up and down the pyramid have been asking for. But the big price you are paying is you are saying, right, going forward... The big six are going to be calling the shots. Mm. Plus Everton, Southampton, and well, West Ham for, for, yeah. for time being. But if those three go, another another three, another three coming. But it doesn't really matter, does it? Matt, finally, then, how likely do you think that this is going to happen? What's your What's your gut feeling? My gut feeling is that this won't happen because we've already seen the Premier League itself is furious. They didn't like the way this this sort of feels like it's been sort of cooked up by a couple of their big clubs. True. And they didn't like the way it sort of was leaked. Well, leaked but or, or discovered by the Telegraph. Hats off, kudos, great scoop for Sam Wallace. Um, and it, it has dribbled out. And even even the people behind this, you know, they're, 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 you know, Liverpool and Man United are not entirely happy that it's come out in this way. Rick Parry, of course, we, have, we haven't mentioned him yet. Rick Parry, the chairman of the EFL, the very first chief executive of the Premier League, ex-chief executive of Liverpool, is very much on board with this. In fact, he is, I would argue, its main cheerleader. So you have the EFL itself calling for this plan. Premier League are furious. They see this, and we should not be surprised about this because this is massively changing how the, the Premier League operates. Uh, we haven't heard so much from championship clubs. I think that would be really interesting. League One and League Two quite like it. They really do. But you think it won't go through because the Premier League no, won't? No, no, because it's, it's the, the people who really lose here are the other 14. Two fewer places, and also then losing losing all that power. Mm. Two fewer places, four fewer games. It's being taken from the the fourteen and distributed down the pyramid. So depending on who you follow, that I think might guide how you feel about this. But even if you're sort of more neutral, I, I would be worried about the, that long term concentration of power in the big six. Well, Matt Slater there from The Athletic, uh, Adrian from the Totally Football League show and Duncan of uh, Wickham Fandom. What, what, what are your takes? Much needed modernisation or a power grab with some bungs <laughs> thrown at people? Yeah, I mean, it feels opportunistic, doesn't it, in the extreme? It's like, well, we can save you, but only under this proviso, which greatly benefits us six. And, and that just feels feels dirty, doesn't it, to me? I mean... With Rick Parry, I think, looking at it from an EFL perspective, I get it because I think the parachute payments do distort things. I don't like them. 25% of revenue going to the EFL is great. And and I fully understand that. But he's also losing two clubs. They're losing EFL status. 
according to the plan, it will be a 90, not a 92. So that's two teams that Rick Parry's happy to just toss aside and send into the National League. And he also gives up a championship playoff berth um, to, to, to give a second chance to a, a Premier League team. And again, I don't, I don't really like that. I, I think that it would, uh, yeah, I, I just think that it works just fine as it, as it is. But I can see the spectacle being quite exciting in terms of having a, a Premier League team scrapping for survival in a playoff. But yeah, but yeah, it's um, yeah, it's a tough one. I, I can see pros and cons, but but my overriding feeling is that it's all a bit sly. Duncan, if anyone wants a reminder of what it used to be like, they, when the playoffs first started, they had that system where a, a struggling team from the top flight would play a. There was a, a particularly. Uh, badly behaved Chelsea Middlesbrough game at Stamford Bridge when uh, the, there was quite a lot of uh, hooliganism. So that's something to look up if you didn't even know about that. But I mean, as Matt said, you know, I think a lot of League One and League Two clubs will find this quite attractive. And I think there's there's like a massive hubris pie here because if you remember a few weeks ago, Sean Dyche saying, you know, why should Premier League clubs help out lower league clubs because you know hedge fund managers don't help out struggling hedge fund managers? Well. Clubs the size of Wickham probably overall would benefit from this. It's clubs like Burnley, that sort of size club, who are really going to lose out. And it's almost like, well, hang on, a few weeks ago you didn't really care about the pyramid and now suddenly you're getting affected and it's a, it's a big problem. Matt Pomeroy pointing out that there are good ideas in there, as you said, a cap of £20 on away ticketing, subsidised away travel, safe standing sections at the discretion of each club and 5% of Premier League gross income to be contributed annually to good causes and grassroots football. And the parachute payment would disappear with a quarter of a billion pounds being contributed from Premier League receipts every year to the Football League. You can understand why Rick Parry's eyes may have lit up at the at the idea of it. The notion, though, of reducing the top flight from 20 to 18. Of course, it was 22 when the Premier League began and has come down once already without anybody, uh, you know, without any undue effects. Jules, what's your take? I mean, this, uh, you know, the 18 club uh, league is what I find the most interesting, really, because that's what the Bundesliga have, for example. And you can see, I guess, how competitive, uh, you know, maybe not apart from Bayern Munich, but you could you could see the benefit of having 18, 18 clubs in your league, of course. Uh, in France, it's a big debate. There's a lot of clubs, especially the bigger ones, who would like the league to go from 20 to 18 too. And I can see why they've put that forward as well. Just to come back on the on new, new playoff system, because in Germany right now and in France, mm. you have that. So the... You've got the, the third bottom from the, the top the top flight playing against the whoever finished either third in, in the second division or win a little playoff from, there. Yeah. Hmm. And and at least on the on the last few years, the, the team in the top flight always win. So I think you know this is a way for the Premier League to say, okay, three clubs coming up from the from from the championship is too many. Let's just have two because there's maybe eighty percent chances that the Premier League club will play the playoff final against the, the the one from the championship. We'll go through anywhere and we'll we'll stay in the Premier League. So even even that, I think it's a bit. I'm not so convinced with it, but yeah. I, okay, well, you know. as someone who makes who spends most of his time comparing one season to another, suddenly losing two teams is very painful to me. You know, it's hard enough you, comparing stuff to the first three Premier League seasons when, when there were 22 teams. So. Um, at least we'll never see yeah. another t- team get 100 it's, points, I guess. It's, cl- it's cleverly put together because it, there's enough in it for, for the vast majority of the 92 to be kind of in favour of it. But it does heap a lot of pressure on the, on those lower tier Premier League clubs because say they do vote against it, as Matt predicts, then does that mean 
that the EFL is in ruin? Does it mean that the salvation package is done and dusted? Are they going to be guilt-tripped into saying, look, this, this comes down to you. You can you can save all these clubs in the EFL or you can, you can you know, let, let them die. What, what would you like to do? hedge fund managers, yeah. yeah well, it's, I, it's I, I did wonder run. whether the whole thing was a bit of a trial balloon, kind of floated or indeed leaked to a Sunday paper to see what the reaction was and then maybe use the bits of it that didn't uh, incite too much anger. The other question is whether whether indeed they've been a bit unambitious if they're actually going to redesign the football pyramid. We, we asked listeners what they would recommend. Matthias Schelzi says, I go further and split the 18 Premier League teams into four groups of four and a half. They would play in four different continents outside of Europe and charge a nominal £50 per game for fans at home to watch. That's probably, I think that's possibly in the proposal megatron as a, a i mean a lot of people coming back megatron says no fake injuries you go down for more than 30 seconds you're off the pitch for five minutes uh james it's a nolan, bit retro megatron given he was always going down and transformers is that right okay james nolan says how about giving greater power to everyone other than the top six as they've got the most security as it is richard socks uh, with a brilliant proposal give the teams in the bottom half six points for a win and then in january every team gets a random pick from any other team now that would be exciting uh, tim parks meanwhile says i would abolish everton Oh, one more actually. Kumas, Kumas, you are says just make the player ball size ratio the same as in Sabutio. What, what do you reckon on on those, Jules? Uh, anything you take from that? What would you do to football? So seriously, I would the the away goals uh, rule really does my head in. So I probably would scrap that. Other than that, uh-huh. we could do the um, the scoring boost like you have on on FIFA. So sometimes in the game. If you score, it counts for double or triple even. And I think, you know, my children are very excited with it when we play. I think maybe fans will be excited too. Can you imagine? You're 3-1 down and then it's a double scoring boost and then suddenly you score and it's 3-3. It's amazing. Jules, I can see that going down really well. I can see loads of people going, oh, it's fine. We lost the game to the magic ball. Yeah, just take it on the chin and move on. (laughs) What I would do, what I would do is a lot of the big clubs always say, and it's not about... You know, we're not in our position just because of our history. It's because of our stature, blah, blah, blah. Why not say we're going to start season two of football, right? 1888 till now, or season one. We remove all the history from every club. We randomly mm. assort the clubs in the four divisions again. And everyone just Ooh. starts again and we'll see. <laughs> bold, <Ooh>. bold. <laughs> yeah. I can't, that would be massive. The um, on a, on a, yes, it's really quite boring uh, by comparison. I think it should be compulsory for fan representatives to, to be on the boards of, of, nice. of Premier League mm. and EFL clubs. I, th- I think that's something that, that that would that would change the dynamic. And also, in terms of the game itself, I've, I've been banging this drum for a while, and it gives me an opportunity to say it again. Penalties are given too easily these days, right? You can get penalties for nothing. We've seen it here with England um, in the last game. Move it back three yards, 15-yard spot. I'm telling you now, 12 yards is too <laughs> close to the goal. Make it 15 yards, and 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 it's it's a less of a you know it's less of a big deal to to concede a penalty. It's tougher to score. And switch to the metric system where we're at it. <laughs> Maybe also, so. Maybe well, so. <laughs> the the immediate effect in the meanwhile of uh, Project Big Picture etc. is that it took the heat rather off uh, the Premier League for their brave new PPV plan, which we uh, touched on at the start. The Premier League. Games not selected for broadcast in October, which are five fixtures per round, are to be available for pay-per-view on BT and Sky Sports at about £15 each, beginning with Chelsea Saints next Saturday. 
the fact that it's the Premier League games not selected for broadcast that will be featured in this means, as Michael Cox puts it, that fans of Burnley and West Brom will have to fork out an extra £15 about three times as often as fans of Man United or Liverpool. Of course, they could always choose not to watch those games, which seems to be the general reaction uh, from people to this idea. The Premier League said to have been taken aback by the vehemence of uh, the reaction. Only one of the 20 clubs voted against the idea. Apparently, everybody else thought it was absolutely fine. Duncan, you're you're warming up for something. Well, I mean, essentially, this has been the, the state of play in the, in the Football League for, for a couple of seasons with, with iFollow. So, um, you know, if your game wasn't at three o'clock, which is obviously uh, the blackout covered that, but if it wasn't, you could you could pay £10 for it. And that's obviously changed this season to, to every game. Um, now, I think what they could have done here is they could have said season ticket holders for those clubs that are going to be on the box office thing get it for free and then anyone else who wants to watch it pays for it um but i mean ultimately you know this all stems from the fact that england has got the most unique and unusual way of selling football rights in the world you know every other country will just you know a club can show any of their games to whoever wants to watch it whereas we you know people abroad still can't really understand that there were there were five sort of premier league games at three o'clock on saturday that no one could really watch live legally um, and I think the pandemic's only kind of sped up the change in, in that process. Yeah, that, that's certainly true. And it's down to the, the TV blackout. But uh, I, I don't think it's true that clubs in other countries can just show whatever they want. There are collective deals for, for the major European No, leagues. no. But I mean, if you're a Juventus fan in yeah. Italy, you can watch every Juventus game. Yes. And as FPL Banger points out, if you're a Premier League fan living in, say, Malaysia, you can watch all 380 games for about £25 a month. So it is curious. Yeah. It is it's curious. too expensive, James. It's too expensive. In mm. the current climate where, where most people are struggling, loads of people are losing their jobs on furlough, it, it's, a, it's a time of crisis. They're asking for, for a sum that's, that's unfair, really. I think a fiver would have been, you know, somewhere between a fiver and a ten a max really would have been, would have been accepted. But, but this, is, this, this price point is too high. It just feels like exploitation. And, and for that reason, I do think that fans will boycott it. I see. Well, at this point, Jules is leaving us because he's off to watch uh, France against Portugal. That's right, world champions against European champions. And he'll be back very shortly to tell us how that went. In the meantime, Adrian and Duncan, after this, we'll discuss the Euro qualifiers. Hey, listener, when it comes to football know-how, listening to us three times a week means you should be at the very top of your game. Like Kevin De Bruyne, you can see the play before it happens. So isn't it time that you made some extra coin from all of this? Football Index is the way to capitalise on your knowledge of all things on and off the field. Buy shares in the players you think will perform and win dividends when they make an impact on the pitch or in the media. Download Football Index on iOS and Android today, and when you enter the offer code TFS20, you'll get a seven-day, £500 money-back guarantee. Full terms and conditions are available at trade.footballindex.co.uk slash money-back guarantee. It's 18 plus only, and please be gambleaware.org. Become a football stock market trader today with Football Index. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power. Thursday night saw the first round of the Euro 2020 qualifiers. Yes, 16 teams bidding for four playoff places at the Euros next summer. Fingers crossed. Among them, Scotland, Ireland and Northern Ireland. Curiously, late on Thursday, all three of those sides saw their games go to penalty shootouts. 
Northern Ireland and Scotland having their first penalty shootouts ever. Which one did you guys watch? <laughs> well, I, I had the joy, James, of, of flicking because they were on three mm. channels in a row, weren't they, on, on Sky? And you could just go up and down. And it worked out like an absolute dream because none of the two penalties, I think just one penalty clashed. So I was able to, I, th- I think I only missed one pen out of the whole three matches. It was, Unlike it was really quite joyous. Mm. Yeah, Fewer than it. you missed in your career. I did miss one in my career, actually. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Just a one, yeah. Mm. Well, Northern Ireland <laughs> went through brilliant stuff from their manager, Ian Barraclough, who in the final minutes of extra time, 119th minute, with the score 1-1 against the mighty Bosnia Herzegovina, he took off two players that he previously subbed on to put in two forwards, Connor Washington and Liam Boyce, who took and scored the fourth and fifth penalties for Northern Ireland, who won the shootout. Ali Tweedale pointing out that it's pretty remarkable that a Nations League group that ended with Northern Ireland on no points and Bosnia and Herzegovina on 10 has now seen Northern Ireland beating Bosnia on penalties to win the resulting Euro 2020 playoff. But that's football for you. There's always a second chance for the underdog. Uh, wh- what did you make of uh, Barraclough's move? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's almost typically Northern Irish move. I remember Martin O'Neill, when he was Leicester manager in the 90s, doing the same thing in a, or similar thing in a playoff final when he brought on hulking goalkeeper Spider Kalach um, for the penalty shootout that seemed inevitable, only for um, Steve Clarish to score a, like a last-minute extra-time winner. So it, it wasn't even needed. But, yeah, I mean, we saw it as well with um, Van Hal in the 2014 right. World Cup. Tim Krul, so. no? For the for the shootout against Costa Rica, and, and we saw Sarri denied denied the opportunity to to do a Barraclough, didn't we, by by Mr. Kepper? And it goes back to my all time bugbear in fo- watching football, I think, which is in Euro '96. Terry Venables mm. not played this the starting eleven for the whole ninety minutes and extra time against Germany in the semi final, and he had Robbie Fowler and Les Ferdinand on the bench. Surely one of those could have come on um, instead of Gareth Southgate taking one and, and missing. Sometimes it works, as with Northern Ireland and Louis van Gaal, as you mentioned. Sometimes, as with Italy at Euro 2016, it doesn't work quite so well. You recall Simone Zaza, who was brought on by Conte uh, with just seconds to go and, and, and his infamous penalty run up now against Germany. Northern Ireland uh, will next face Slovakia, who saw off Ireland in their penalty shootout. An understrength Ireland team, Duncan. Yeah, their uh, staff member... Uh, apparently tested positive for COVID-19, which ruled out Aaron Connolly and Adam Edar. Just um, before the game, huh? Yeah, and Connolly is a pretty good goal scorer, and Ireland's main issue at the moment is scoring goals, so that was a big loss, which is bad. But then even worse is it was reported on Sunday that the uh, the positive test was actually a false positive, so they didn't need to miss the game. So that's, Crikey. you know, that's going to hurt. Certainly will. Scotland, meanwhile did go past against Israel on penalties, uh, despite having no shots on target in the entire 120 minutes. They are now one match, one win, from reaching a major tournament for the first time since 1998. Pretty good stuff. They also had a lot of players who were out because of COVID and that. They did, yeah. Kieran Tierney was one of those that was caught up in it. Um, it was Stuart Armstrong, wasn't it, that, that tested positive. He'd been playing computer games, I think, in the in the same room. Insisted that they'd been, you know, more than two meters apart. But but that's the way it goes. I know that Arsenal are really upset about this because it means that that he might miss the Manchester City game because he has to self isolate. So it'd be interesting to see 
what they can do about that. But but yeah, look, well played Scotland. I mean, mm. they, they won the it's their first first shootout, wasn't it? I believe. So mm-hmm. that's quite remarkable in itself. They might need another shootout to get past Serbia. I think that they'd be quite lucky to get a shootout against Serbia. Did you see Serbia against Norway? Well, yeah, they're a much much stronger side, aren't they? Serbia. They've got some some top talents, and and they, they must be overwhelming favourites to to go through. Um, clean sheets aren't that common under Steve Clark for Scotland. I think that was the, only the second one in eleven matches. So so to hold out against the Serbs. Is, is going to be tough, especially um, with with quite a blunt forward line, let's be honest. In midfield, they're quite solid. Scotland, they've got some good, good players, but up top, they don't have a lot of creativity and uh, I think that, that might hamstring them in the end. Mm, Serbia have Sergei Milinkovic-Savic, Mr SMS, who uh, contributed a brace to put out Holland and co. The second goal of which is absolutely magnificent. It's sort of a, almost like a, well, somebody described it as like a Panenka, but not from the spot, basically. Very nice. Anyway, Duncan, sorry. I was just going to say, I, I've been waiting more than 20 years for a follow-up to Delamitri's World Cup song for Scotland in 98, Don't Come Home Too Soon, which is like a forgotten classic. So, mm. you know, I'm, here's hoping. Right. The other playoff games, these are coming up on November the 12th, North Macedonia against Georgia and Iceland visiting Hungary, which... It surely should be the other way around. When you're hungry, you visit Iceland, isn't it? Anyway, uh, fun's not over yet, listener, because very shortly we'll have uh, Julian Laurent back to tell us all about how France against Portugal went and Italy against Poland and other stuff too from Sunday evening. Before we get onto that, though, let's hear from our friend Lee Price from Paddy Power. Hello, Totally Football Show listeners. I'm delighted to announce that you can now sign up to bonus odd segments on a pay-per-view basis. For just £14.95 per segment, you can hear me read aloud fractions such as 9 to 2, 11 to 10, 2 to 1 and of course 9 to 5. To register for this exclusive content, simply hold down the P key of any internet-enabled device. And now that's almost 30 seconds of this International Week segment filled on with this edition of Number Fun. Lineal world champions England, yep, I'm from the Tyson Fury School of Hype, are back at Wembley for the 29th time this week, taking on Denmark. Having beaten Belgium last time out, this match actually borders on the meaningful for England as they top their Nations League group, which, as we all know, is A2. And we think England will be A1 here, making them the 4-6 to favourites to win. There you go, boss. Some betting stuff for you. Denmark are 18-5, to the draw is 29-10. to Elsewhere, there's a World Cup final repeat, and we expect the same result here with France 23 to 20 to winning Croatia. That's better than evens, so could equal hashtag value. Croatia 23 to 10 to win that one. While we're back in Italy to beat the Netherlands in the pick of the games, Mancini's men are 6 to 5, Holland is 21 to 10, and I'm off. All the best. You can find out these odds and more, listener, at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18 only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. Jules. James. Yes, there you are. You're back. Great news. All right, look, the others have disappeared. But you and I can have a chat now about the other Nations League games from this weekend. Not all of them. Don't worry, all the games we don't feature will make available on a paper listen service. <laughs> uh, no, but uh, just to mention one or two of the results, uh, Saturday, Spain beat Switzerland. Germany finally won a Nations League game, 2-1 in Ukraine. Sunday in England's group, Denmark beat Iceland 3-0. And then Sunday night, Jules, we were across a couple of nil-nils. Italy-Poland, which has left that group super tight. There's now one point between Italy, Netherlands and Poland. 
with Bosnia-Herzegovina within three points as well. And Wednesday, uh, Italy played the Netherlands. That would be big. And the other nil-nil, of course, in the exciting France-Portugal game. World champions against European champions. Jules, what did you make of it? I thought it was good. I thought it was good, Jimbo. I thought Portugal started really well. They were so physical in midfield. Fernando Santos chose um, to start with Danilo Pereira and, and William Carvalho together in the midfield with uh, with Bruno Fernandes. They had the more, the more creative players, but clearly he wanted a lot of physicality in there, which worked because we, we didn't really see much of Antoine Griezmann. We didn't see much mm. of of Kylian Mbappé in that first half. We saw uh, a big elbow from Ruben Diaz in the back of Olivier Giroud's uh, head after just two minutes. Mm. And I think that was the idea for, for Portugal to, to, to be very strong and very solid in midfield and defensively and then to go very quickly forward. They, they were certainly the better side in the first half, I thought. And then in the second half, it changed and, and France got you know where the better side by, by a mile. Pogba was, was fantastic in that second half. They just could not create enough or, or just be efficient enough in the last pass and the last 30 yards to um, to score a goal. But I just thought it was really good. And I've got no doubt that Portugal will be very strong in the summer, in the Euros, and, and so will be France. Portugal coming close in the second half, but you're right, France did seem the better team, although I was a bit perplexed at why they weren't able to get more out of that fantastic front three of Griezmann, uh, Giroud and Mbappe. You're right. I mean, I'm not convinced so much by Griezmann as a number 10. This is this is Deschamps' new new thing, his new idea is to try, let's let's try a lot of formations. You know they won the World Cup in a, in a 4-4-2 formation with, with four flat in midfield and now he's trying different things. So tonight we saw a diamond midfield, so the 4-4-2 but with a diamond midfield with Griezmann at the top of it as a, num- as a number 10 and then Pogba, Kante and, and Rabiot behind him. We saw last month and before the lockdown and a 3-4-1-2 formation again with Griezmann as, an, as a number 10, but a back three this time. So he's, Deschamps is trying different things, which I like. I'm just not convinced by Griezmann in that position. And, and the, the complementarity between him and Giroud and Mbappé at the World Cup, Mbappé played wide uh, and Giroud and Griezmann played together up front. Now it's, it's, it's a bit different. I think they will need to work on it. Certainly you have more balance because you've got the three in midfield and Deschamps likes to be quite secure and and quite cautious, but I just think you you lack a bit of penetration for sure because you don't have any wingers, for example. I think Griezmann and, and Mbappé sometimes are playing in the same areas and then you don't maybe use Giroud as much as when you just play 4-4-2 with two up front. So it would need a bit of time to see what was the best formation. Maybe Deschamps would go back to the flat 4-4-2 for the, for the Euros. But certainly try, trying something different is a good thing, I guess, because he was very conservative for many years. I'm just not sure that it works for Griezmann in that position. That's all. Mm. You had a nice chat with Giroud, didn't you, after his phenomenal performance against Ukraine in that, what was it, 7-1, the result on Yes, uh, that's right, Wednesday? 7-1 on Wednesday night, yes. Mm. Yes, we spoke on Friday. He was obviously very happy by the fact that he won his, his 100th cap on Wednesday and was captain as well, which I think meant a lot to him. He, he said he had only been captain once for Arsenal before in, in, a, in a cup game and this was, was very special. And then obviously he scored two goals, which meant that he overtook Michel Platini, although he says you, you don't overtake Platini like you would not overtake Thierry Henry. They're just, mm. especially Platini, is such a legend of, of French football. But in terms of numbers and the goal scored, he's, he's above him and I think he, he could not really believe it. And it was it was a lovely chat. He's such a great guy, and I think hopefully you can see in in the interview um, that that I wrote on on Friday. But it's just that feeling of even when no one believed in him 15 years ago, when he had to go through the third division 
and then then when he was in the third division he thought okay my my next aim my next target is to play one day in the second division and when when he did that he said okay now I would like to play in the top flight and then when he did that he won the league and then he said I would like to play in England because that was his dream since he was a kid and he did that and same with the national team he never thought he would get that far winning the World Cup having 100 caps being the second top goal scorer in the history of the country and yet he's there and I think he shows that with determination and hard work and and self-belief you can you can achieve your dreams. Olivier Giroud facing a bit of a challenge at his club. Uh, you mentioned Pogba having a, a, a good second half for, for France. How was his role and uh, how much of an improvement was it, uh, his, uh, his game on Sunday night, compared to what we've been seeing with Manchester United? I thought it was an average first half where, again, he struggled a bit against the physicality from, from Danilo and William Carvalho. Much better in the second half because France had more of the ball. There was a lot of movement in front of him. And I think that's that's where he's so good. He played in the midfield three, as we said on the on the right hand side, and we know, and it's been a debate pretty much since day one after he joined United that he feels much better in in the midfield three. Of of course, he won the World Cup mm. in the midfield two, and now United they play with the midfield two. But you could certainly see that because he can drive the ball more in the midfield three, because he was always he's always going to be better going forward than defending anyway. Um, he feels more at ease, I think, in that in in, in that formation and in in that tactics. However, he has to adapt as well when the team is not playing like that, and when the team doesn't have as much as the ball that, that like the French had in that second half. He needs to adapt as well, and and I think we, he will improve the, the 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 sharper he gets in, in terms of match fitness. But certainly, you could see in that second half that the talent is still very much there, and he just he just needs to go and. And, and reach that kind of level consistently now to be able to shine again for United and also for the national team because a Pogba in that kind of form, the one we saw in the second half, creating, being always on the move, uh, being also very good defensively, be, the, the way he was trailing back and, and the way he was getting stuck in, we haven't seen that so far for United in, in the season in the Premier League. So this is certainly, I think, for United fans and Solskjaer and people at the club, very good news to have seen Pogba in that kind of form in the second half, especially physically in terms of match fitness in that second half until the end being at that kind of level. I see. Who's next for France, Jules? Croatia on Wednesday, which I think oh, again. should be yeah, again, a, a really good game. I thought they were maybe not at their best against Sweden this afternoon. Yeah, but, but 2-1 certainly, winners there. Yeah, but, but certainly, mm. I mean, certainly, especially in the first half, but certainly I think they will give France a really good game. We saw them being completely battered by, by Portugal um, last month mm. and, and they, they lost quite heavily and they could have easily uh, lost more heavily, more, more heavily than that. Uh, but, but I think the win today, after, you know, they lost 4-1 to Croatia last month and 4-2 to France and certainly they would want to give a better performance against the French on, um, on, on Wednesday night. So yeah, I think it would be very good. Another rematch of the World Cup final. Will yes. this one go differently? We shall see. Jules, thank you very much for that. And with that, we come listening to the end of this Totally Football show. Thanks for being with us. Uh, we're going to be back on Thursday as we round up all the games to come in the internationals and also look ahead to the Premier League weekend. In the meantime, there's the Totally Scottish Football show uh, out on Tuesday and Totally Football League show will be out soon as well. So loads of other great content. Have yourselves a blast anyway and we'll speak to you soon. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything Totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and follow us at The Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. 
Check out all of The Athletic's football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on The Athletic app. The Totally Football Show is a Muddy Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. Muddy Knees Media.